marked a decisive turn in India's freedom struggle. And that wasn't because of anything the British did. It wasn't because of anything the Congress did. It was because one man returned to India after close to two and a half decades abroad. That man was Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. And his return, his political philosophy, his techniques of mobilization, his most unusual political style, and his ability to connect with the masses altered the trajectory of British colonialism and the Indian nationalist movement. Mahatma Gandhi, the Porbandar-born barrister who had made South Africa his home, was already a well-known figure in India by the time he returned. He had conceptualized the idea of Satyagraha. He had committed himself to the principles of truth and non-violence. He had led agitations against British rule in South Africa. But who was this man? Why did he return? What did he do after returning? And why did he choose a remote district in Bihar, Champaran, as the first site of his struggle? To discuss the Mahatma and his impact on the Indian nationalist movement, as well as the Champaran Satyagraha, I am delighted to welcome to this episode the historian, writer and former parliamentarian Rajmohan Gandhi. Rajmohanji is among the Mahatma's foremost biographers. His books, among others, include The Good Boatman, Mohandas, A True Story of a Man, his people and an empire, and why Gandhi still matters, an appraisal of the Mahatma's legacy. Rajmohan Gandhi is also the Mahatma's grandson. As an aside, at the Hindustan Times, we are deeply privileged and honoured to have a special connection with the family. While the Mahatma inaugurated the paper, Rajmohan Gandhi's father, Devdas Gandhi, has the distinction of being the longest-serving editor of Hindustan Times. On that note, sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Prashant, very much. I'm very happy to be with you doing this. Sir, take us back to the Mahatma's pre-1915 years in South Africa. We know he read law in London, he returned briefly to India, and then he moved to South Africa. How did his political engagement in South Africa evolve? What were the issues he picked up? And how did he arrive at the unique political philosophy that became his thought? Of course, we should know that he went to South Africa from Gujarat, from Rajkot, to improve his personal prospects. And he also felt he had to get out of Katiawad because he had had a clash with Charles Ollivant, who was the empire's political agent for Katiawad. He was the big man in Katiawad. He influenced everything in the region. And because Mohandas Gandhi had had a fight with Ollivant, and Ollivant was controlling everything in Katiawad, he felt he had to leave Katiawad. So when he had this opportunity to go to South Africa, he took it eagerly. So on your question of how his life in South Africa evolved and how his uh, principles and strategies evolved, well, that's a good long story and I'll try and relate it. First of all, recall that he spent altogether 
a span of 21 years. He wasn't there throughout these 21 years because he made a couple of visits to India during that time. But from the age of 23 to the age of 44, 45, he was in South Africa. So these were prime of life years for him. But they were also very consequential years in his evolution and in evolving his strategy. Uh, he did a lot of reading in the first 18 months or so, including about the 1857 movement, which many people have not uh, recognized or given importance to. Uh, the South Africa where he landed in 1893 was not the South Africa that we know of later. There was no union of South Africa. It was a collection of small colonies. Some were British run, some were run by the so-called Afrikaners, who were a Dutch-Portuguese European group. Africa settled Europeans there were. It only became a united South Africa in, in 1910. The Indians who were there, most of them were indentured labor workers. Uh, from Bihar, from, from UP, from Tamil Nadu, from Andhra, Telugu speakers, Tamil speakers, Hindi speakers, and there were some traders. Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi was the first Indian barrister to land there in 1893. Now, uh, during, uh, he was there for a few years, and then he went to India in 1901, about seven or eight years after being in South Africa. Uh, he felt that his work in South Africa had more or less been completed uh, and he wanted to do something uh, in India and for Indian independence. But the Indians of South Africa called him and he could not refuse. So he returned after that 12 month or 13 month stay in 1901 and 2. Another very big landmark for him was in 1906 in South Africa. And this is when he uh, discovered, you might say, Satyagra, non-violent direct action. So he was leading in 1906 an ambulance unit in support of the British who were suppressing a rebellion in Natal, a Zulu rebellion. And Gandhi realized there as he saw this rebellion firsthand as a leader of this ambulance unit, he called it a manhunt that was taking place. He realized that the British with their superior arms were not going to be defeated by assassination. He had already studied the 1857 story very carefully. And this experience in the Zulu country, while the British were suppressing a rebellion by the African Zulus, even Gandhi just realized that a non-violent struggle was going to be far more effective if we had to deal with British imperialism and that is where and when uh, the Satyagra concept was understood by him and conceived by him. Uh, now, another landmark in South Africa is 1909. At this time, he is on a visit to England to uh, fight there for the rights of Indians of South Africa, to fight in London, which is the headquarters of the empire. And on his way back from London to South Africa, on this ship, he writes this a uh, short book, famous book, called Hind Swaraj. Now, the interesting thing is, he is returning to South Africa. He was in England to discuss South Africa, but the book is entirely about India. So already India is in his sights. He is writing about how Satyagraha can be used in India for India's independence. So that is a central theme of this book, Hind Swaraj. And in, in 1913, uh, there is a very great... Uh, Satyagraha event in South Africa and it was a great march uh, mostly in the Natal region of South Africa 
this was an astonishing uh, event where Indians of all kinds, especially the indentured workers, some women also taking a role, many of them were arrested, uh, and many some some liberal whites also supported Gandhi in this uh, march. Uh, this was a transforming event in, in, in South Africa, this march. Uh, and because this march was successful and uh, the main demands of the Indians were granted, there was a, a, a tax on the indentured Indians. If they wished to stay on in South Africa, they had to pay a very stiff tax year after year. And this demand that this tax should go was finally accepted as a result of the Satyagraha by the South African government. And so when this victory was secured, Gandhi finally was willing to go back to India. That's a fascinating story, sir. And thank you for illustrating for us what he did in those years. I was struck by the fact that his engagement with 1857 and that movement also pushed him in the direction of nonviolence. And even during this stint, he stayed engaged with the Indian nationalist struggle and what was happening. Can you tell us a little bit about his relationship with those early nationalist leaders in India, even while he was in South Africa? We read about Gokhale being one of his mentors. What was that relationship like? So he arrives in South Africa in 1893. In 1896-97, he spends a few months in, in India. He goes there principally to inform Indians about the condition of the Indians of South Africa and the struggle that they are waging there for their rights. In the course of giving information about Indians in South Africa, uh, he travels to different parts of India. That is where he meets Tilak in Pune. He meets Gokhale in Pune. Uh, and he meets others also, and he meets editors of newspapers all across India. And India is informed. And this, of course, is also a reason why when he returns to South Africa, he is strongly attacked, in fact, violently attacked. He almost is uh, lynched. He somehow escapes that attack in January of 97. Uh, and then he continues his work in, in South Africa. And then he spends, as I had mentioned earlier, between 1901 and 1902, about 12 or 13 months in India. Uh, and this time, he spent several months actually in the home of Gokhale, who is a member of the Imperial Council. And he has a large home given to him in Calcutta, Kolkata, which is the capital of India at that time. Uh, and he, he forms a particularly deep relationship with Gokhale. He meets other leaders also. And then he returns uh, to South Africa because South Africans insist that his work in South Africa is not over. So he goes back to South Africa, but he remains in touch with the leaders of India. And in, in 1912, this is about a year or so before the Great March of 1913, of, of which I had mentioned earlier, uh, so Gokhale urges him now to, to return to India after visiting South Africa. You're quite right that Gokhale was something like his mentor, like a political guru. So when he finally arrives in India back in 1915, January, of course, he meets Gokhale. He also meets Tilak. In fact, they are in, in Bombay to, to greet him and meet him because what Gandhi has achieved and the Indians have achieved in South Africa is very big news in India in 1914, 1915. Yeah, but within a few weeks of his arrival, Gokhale is dead. So he's by himself now. 
at the, at this time when he comes back to india and his engagement with gokhale who was a member of the council as you said gandhi is still operating within the premise of india being within the empire right he is not moved to rebelling against the empire at this stage has he no he is not at all and what was his rationale in looking at progress and reforms within the empire so while in south africa for he was always trying to involve london to safeguard the rights of the indians of south africa and he also had noted and he underlined and he reminded the british that the british government and especially victoria in various statements after the 1857 revolt had made various promises and commitments that indians would be free that indians in the empire would have equal rights that hindus muslims would have equal rights that christianity would not be imposed uh, that there would be freedom of speech and that indians and all the races of the empire were going to be absolutely equal this was the theoretical promise of the british empire and gandhi underlined it and he wanted to believe in it and for some time after returning to india he did believe in it but then by 1919 1920 that belief ended so when gandhi returns in 1915 how does he see the state of india's nationalist movement the partition of bengal happened a decade before that uh the hindu muslim division was in the process of deepening within the congress the extremist moderate factionalism had deepened uh so so when when gandhi comes back does he feel like he has landed in this anarchic mess or does he feel energized to help resolve it no he comes with a plan uh when he arrives in india in january of 1915 he already has a plan he is aware of what has happened the division in the nationalist movement Uh, even the hostility between the moderates and the extremists the hindu muslim divide he is also aware of untouchability uh, that it is a mighty evil and it's also politically a great weakness and gandhi realizes uh, while he's in south africa while he's traveling by ship to return to india and in his early days and weeks in india in 1915 that there are these three great goals that india must have independence hindu muslim friendship and ending the inequalities in hindu society and in indian society generally so without uh, ending inequality without ending untouchability without hindu muslim partnership and friendship independence could not be gained and india would not even deserve independence if it continued with untouchability with inequality so one of gandhi's great convictions and his you might say his great gifts that he provided to india at that time was to say that independence hindu muslim friendship removal of inequality in hindu society indian society these are interconnected goals and without uh, addressing the indian weaknesses india would neither get independence nor deserve independence so this was his broad view and and then he comes back with this plan and philosophy and decides to travel across the country right he does uh, he wants to see see india face to face himself and he travels really to every single part of india uh, within weeks and months of his arrival by train uh, to distant corners of india he also apart from getting to know the indian scene the indian reality uh, in towns and in villages as far as possible he also cultivates strong positive personal relations with leaders of all kinds the moderate the extremists the hindus the muslims so this is his also 
he is trying to develop both a relationship with the different kinds of Indians uh, as well as a strategy on, uh, on, on, on what to do. And of course, most on his mind is Satyagra has worked in South Africa against uh, pretty difficult odds. Will it work in India? He has said in Hind Swaraj it would work. So he, after arrival in India, he's on the lookout. Where is Satyagra possible? Where can it be attempted? Where will it succeed? So that is his concern. And of course, that is what soon brings him to Champaro. So, so that would have been my next question. What took him and uh, to, to Bihar then? And what took him to Champaro? Well, uh, of course, uh, as a, there is Gandhi himself. He is on the lookout for possible issues on which Satyagraha can be launched and the possible venues, the locations where Satyagraha could be launched. But fortunately, already there were people in Bihar who were very concerned about the indigo plantation, the coercive uh, forcing of Indian peasants, Bihari peasants, uh, to grow indigo, although indigo was very difficult to grow and was fetching very poor prices. So there was this coercion. And uh, there is this man, Rajkumar Shukla, who uh, is a farmer from Bihar who meets and pesters Gandhi, please come and help us. There is this uh, Mir uh, or Peer rather, Peer Muhammad uh, Munis, who is a journalist in Bihar, uh, who is uh, also studying the uh, indigo issue, the Champaran issue, and he also contacts Gandhi, he writes to Gandhi, he meets Gandhi. So people like Shukla and Munis are meeting Gandhi and urging him. So Gandhi eventually goes and studies for himself possibility will Satyagraha work? So he arrives there and that is uh, an incredible story. And if you want, I can tell you that story. Uh, we would be very keen to hear that story. What does he go and do in Champaran and what are the techniques that he adopts to expose the British and to mobilize the, the, the indigo farmers? So, of course, uh, as some people know, and he has written about this in his autobiography, and others also have written about it, on his way uh, to Champaran to study the place for himself, he uh, is taken by Rajkumar Shukla to the home of Rajendra Prasad in Patna. Babu Rajendra Prasad is a very successful young lawyer in Patna, and the uh, farmers have hired him, have approached him for legal services for their struggle against the injustice in Champaran. So Shukla says to Gandhi, you must meet Rajendra Prashad. So he tries to go to his house in Patna. He is not there. Rajan Babu is somewhere else. He's not at home. And the servants in his home uh, do not allow Gandhi to enter the house. He cannot use the facilities there, the lavatory there, he cannot get water there because the servants think that this man is a low caste man. So Gandhi understands as soon as he arrives in Patna that the caste factor is a very big deal in Bihar. Little has changed in a century, sir, in Bihar. <laughs> Indeed. So, so when Rajan Babu is not there, then Gandhi meets uh, another man he had met earlier in England. He's a Muslim, Mazarul Haq in Patna. And then he manages to eventually get to uh, the Champaran area. And then there is this interesting story that Kripalani, who by this time is teaching in Muzaffarpur, and Kripalani had met Gandhi uh, in 1915, just about two years before this, to, 
And Gandhi had said to Kriplani, Kya kar rahe ho? I'm studying history. So Gandhi said, well, join me and make history. So Gandhi is a teacher of history in, in North Bihar. And Kriplani goes to the station to receive Gandhi. But because Gandhi is traveling third class, uh, although this is at midnight, the train arrives, and Kriplani takes lanterns to try and locate Gandhi. But because Gandhi is traveling third class, he is at great difficulty in finding Gandhi. Finally, they meet up. And then Gandhi goes to Champaran, and to, to various places where indigo is grown. Uh, and so this is the beginning of Gandhi's investigation there. So Gandhi decides that he will really find out the facts. If there is exploitation, so uh, by this time, Rajendra Prasad also arrives there. And another very important lawyer, Brach Kishore Prasad from Patna, also arrives there. There are people like Anugranara and Sinha, uh, who afterwards another very famous uh, political figure there, and scores of other young lawyers in, in, in that North Bihar area, also from Patna, they all come. And Gandhi says to them that we will investigate uh, at the grassroots, in detail, what is happening. And he asks these lawyers that uh, you should now be like stenographers and clerks and take down the stories of every individual farmer and peasant in what way is he suffering? What is the coercion that the European indigo planters are enforcing on them? What are the documents? And of course, some of these documents are written in uh, Urdu, which at this time Gandhi does not read the Urdu script. Uh, they're also written in, is it Kaiti or Kaiti? I don't know how you pronounce that word. Uh, another local dialect. Uh, and so these young lawyers uh, of Bihar, Gandhi takes their aid and makes them as uh, real, uh, you might say, servant helpers of the peasants. So without quite realizing what is happening, these eminent and elite lawyers are slowly becoming uh, new kind of leaders in the national movement. Uh, so, so these people, after Rajan Babu becomes president of India, we all know that. But at that stage, he was a clerk and a stenographer. Uh, and there were other lawyers doing this kind of service. Uh, then, he, because they all came from different castes, uh, Gandhi has a great uh, difficulty in getting them even to eat together while they're working. But he, he, he challenges them, he gets them to eat together. Eat from a common kitchen, which was a big thing in, in 1917 in Bihar. Uh, in any case, uh, these uh, lawyers record thousands of statements from humble peasants. Uh, and energized by Gandhi's presence and the fact that these lawyers are helping them, the peasants say that something is going to happen. Now, and this is uh, the big thing that happens. Uh, on 16th April, 1917, uh, Gandhi served with a notice by the British, you must leave Champaran by the first available train. And in the letter to the district magistrate, Gandhi says, sorry, I do not intend to obey the order. And then he's brought to the court and on the 18th April in Motihari, the headquarters of that area, Gandhi says in the courtroom, and the press gets to know of this, quote, he says, I have disregarded the order served upon me, not for want of respect for lawful authority, 
but in obedience to the higher law of our being, the voice of conscience, unquote. So this courtroom statement was big news across India in April 1917. And we know of uh, evidence in Gujarat, in the Gujarat club. Vallabhai Patel was there, a brilliant lawyer in Ahmedabad. He was, uh, until this time, he was making sarcastic jokes about this man, Gandhi, strange man who says he's going to bring independence. But when this news comes of this statement in the court that I am disregarding this order, this was a sensational piece of news across India. And Vallabhai Patel and others meeting, looking at this newspaper in the Gujarat club, they were playing bridge actually at the time. But they saw this news and somebody else, a man called Harilal Bhai, Rao Sahib Harilal Bhai, he was sitting in his chair, he shot up from his chair, he said, here is a man, here is a hero, here is a brave man. That is the moment when Vallabhai Patel said that he must somehow find a way of joining forces with Gandhi. So that was the time. So uh, anyway, to let me complete the Champaran story. So uh, after Gandhi's uh, radical statement, in fact, for 1917, a completely revolutionary statement, because until that time, yes, there were people who were opposing the British. Some of them were even prepared to find some British individuals and, and kill them, assassinate them. But nobody was openly saying that we are going to defy your laws. This was the first time this man had openly said he was and this man from a distinguished background, barrister, I'm going to defy this. Not only did the Raj not jail Gandhi, the expulsion order was withdrawn. Gandhi was allowed to continue with his inquiry investigation. And then he was made a member of the official inquiry committee looking into the complaints of the peasants. And as a result of this inquiry committee, of which Gandhi was made a member, in October of 1917, this committee unanimously asked for the abolition of the Tinkatiya system, the coercive system. So this was, of course, a very large victory. But the other interesting thing about that victory and the Champaran Satyagra is the number of new leaders that started being, uh, you might say, created of people discovering their qualities and giving up their relatively smaller pursuits and joining the national movement. That's, a, again, a fascinating story of triumph. What were the broader lessons that Gandhi drew from his experience in Champaran? Well, one major lesson, of course, was that Satyagraha can work. That if you, uh, you're not... Uh, raising a lati or finding a, a sword or dagger or a bomb to attack, but you are saying, no, we will not obey you and we will work together. And so that Satyagra can work was a major lesson. The other major lesson uh, of, of Champaran to Gandhi and to other people in India was that uh, there could be an all India struggle because people from Gujarat, from Maharashtra had also gone to assist with Champaran. Women had gone. Uh, and so that Satyagraha can work was a major lesson. And that peasants can be central elements in the struggle against the British. Until this time, these eminent 
lawyers and uh, distinguished uh, people in cities and big cities were uh, appealing for for independence for sometimes making strong demands for independence but for the first time peasants can be involved in india's freedom movement that was another very large discovery uh, and and then uh, although this effort it was not a great success gandhi tried uh, he brought people from gujarat from maharashtra to champaran and they start they started some schools they started try to raise educational levels they try to seek social change in the countryside that was not such a successful uh, uh, experiment uh, although some things were done essentially the, while the political battle was won the social battle remained to be won that too was a lesson drawn uh, from the champaran episode so in a way champaran was the beginning of the democratization of the national movement and its transformation that, from yeah. an elite led a petition giving kind of direction to agitational mass politics but in a completely non-violent way you know there was also a global context at this time world war 1 was happening uh, gandhi had supported british war efforts didn't he and what were his expectations during the war and after the war from the british well that is indeed true so gandhi is trying to figure out what is the right strategy uh, if we support the war effort will the british then give us independence this was his attempt and so he tried to, for some time to support the british war effort of course uh, uh, that did not succeed so much and not too many indians joined the war effort as a result of gandhi's uh, efforts all the many indian soldiers did join the british side uh, but soon thereafter uh, in 1919 there was the rowlett act uh, which uh, uh, imposed severe curbs on freedom of expression and that is when gandhi launched an all india satyagraha the rowlett satyagraha there was a huge thing in 1919 so but both as a result of champaran and as a result of the satyagraha in 1919 over the rowlett issue of course which eventually led to the jallianwala bag massacre many people have forgotten that it was the satyagraha against the rowlett act that caused this great movement in amritsar and elsewhere in punjab and that is what eventually then caused the jallianwala massacre of april 13 1919 but as a result of champaran and the rowlett satyagraha so let me try to summarize the kind of things that happened in india as a whole first as you mentioned it became a struggle was democratized it became every indian struggle it was clear that women can play a role and soon after 1919 in the non cooperation movement in 1920 21 women were among the thousands who were arrested who embraced arrest for the first time this was happening so women came into the struggle it became an open struggle and the other interesting thing was that it became a struggle to change india from within as well not just to remove the foreigner that removal of untouchability hindu muslim friendship these became the goals of the national political movement not just independence and then there was a change in lifestyle so this is the uh, something that is perhaps most uh, fascinating and uh, kripalani has described this uh, so this this is in 1918 after uh, champaran kripalani and rajendra prasad they go 
to Gujarat to be with Gandhi in Gujarat. And Kripalani there sees Vallabhai Patel of two different kinds. First, he sees a Vallabhai Patel who is a very dressed like a fashionable young barrister. Then after some months with Gandhi, Vallabhai Patel has become a different man. And Kripalani has written about this. Vallabhai Patel has cast off his foreign dress. He's given up his comfortable life. He's now living with the workers. He's sharing the plain food, sleeping on the ground, washing his own clothes, walking long distances in the villages, continuing to be full of fun and laughter. So I'm now going to quote Kripalani's words. The same phenomenon I witnessed again and again in the life of many of our leaders. As soon as they joined the fight for freedom, they seemed to have left behind their old life, never to be resumed. They were born again as Indians. So, so many people became this new kind of leader at that stage. There was Jawaharlal Nehru, there was Vallabhai Patel, Rajin Babu, Rajkopalachari, Maulana Azad. You know, Subhash Chandra Bose also came to India to join the national movement, Jayaprakash Narayan. So there was this new leadership, a new style of leadership, a new range of amazing leaders. So, so within four or five years of the Mahatma returning, he had um, recruited a new line of leaders. He had expanded and deepened the movement. He had invented this new political technique that succeeded. And he had opened up new ways of resistance, right? And he had become, in a way, uh, the supreme leader of the movement, even if he didn't call himself that. What was so magical about this person? How did he do this? How was his, what was he like, in, you know, which, which allowed this kind of adulation, faith in him? Yeah, I think it was the faith of, of these. So he presents, first of all, very clear goals, very clear targets. Sometimes it's a localized target that the Stinkatya system must go, the Roulette Act must go. And later on, of course, salt comes later. So he, he has a way of, of picking up a fight that is a dramatic fight and it attracts already, of course, people are, are exercised on those issues. The Champaran issue was known to the peasants of Satyagraha before Gandhi arrived. So Gandhi is not inventing the issue, but he's identifying the issue. And then he's uh, showing a Satyagraha uh, as, the, as the way of, of dealing with it. And then as a result of his commitment, I would say, as a result of his own life passion, which people are able to observe, uh, that, that there is something that each of us can do, that we also can accept these drastic changes in our life goals instead of worrying about the money we will make or the applause we will get, we will sacrifice. We will be ready to go to prison. So both the cause that he laid out as well as his lifestyle, which they examined by being with him, by marching with him, by living with him in his ashrams, by going to prison with him. So, uh, so they embraced a new lifestyle. So I can add to that that not just a new leadership or a new style of freedom movement, but the media also changed. New poems got written, new songs got written, 
a new literature grew. Uh, and there was a great pride that we were not just ousting the British, uh, winning our freedom, but we're winning it in a new way. And indeed, Gandhi said to these people and to the British that we will drive out British rule, but we are going to not dislike you. We may even love you as individuals. So this, of course, gave a great moral high ground to the Indian freedom movement, that we are asserting our right to be independent, but we will not stoop down to hating even the British. So this also was psychologically a very big factor in India and in fact in the world as a whole. Thank you so much, sir, for taking us through the Mahatma's initial years back in India. As you outlined for our listeners, this changed the nature, the orientation of the nationalist movement eventually led to Indian freedom. But it was the process of gaining that freedom that was so revolutionary and went on to inspire so many struggles across the world including the civil rights struggle in the United States, where we've had Martin Luther King Jr. talk about the Champaran Satyagraha and, of course, his larger, Mahatma's larger philosophical worldview. Uh, it was delightful to sir, have you on the show. Thank you for bringing alive those years of the nationalist movement for us. You're welcome. You're welcome. Stay with us on this journey as we move to the next phase on India's road to independence. Thank you. This episode of 1947 Road to Indian Independence was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Shah. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Amrinder Singh. For more updates on this podcast, follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to hdsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.